Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys as you make your way back to your seats. Let me, let me pray for us uh, before we get into the Word. Oh, Holy Father, I thank you for today. God, you, you reign. You are holy. And all the people tremble before you. And yet you draw us to yourself to worship you. You make yourself known to us. You personally relate to us as our heavenly Father. You love us. You care for us. You watch over us. You protect us. You provide for us. You comfort us. And Lord, as the psalmist would say, what is man that you are mindful of him? We are like the flower that withers away. And Lord, we are constantly reminded of who we are. We are but a breath. And yet in this moment, we are gathering in your presence as we read your word. And you make yourself known. And I pray that in that moment that you would open up our eyes, open up our hearts, our minds. Help us to understand. Help us to be captivated by you, Lord Jesus. Help us to be encouraged by your truths. And Lord, help us to be faced with the reality that because the world hates you, the world will hate us. So come, Lord, and speak to us. Make yourself known. Lord, help me to gather my thoughts. Holy Spirit, just help me to faithfully point people to King Jesus. And Lord, for those who do not know you, Lord, can you help them to surrender their lives to you? Can you open up their eyes as you disclose yourself Help them to see you and be in awe of you. Help them to surrender. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John 15 as we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John, and we're going to pick it up in John chapter 15, verse 18. And so before we get into the text, let's zoom out a little bit. Let's see what John is trying to accomplish. Remember, what John is trying to accomplish, he's trying to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And the way he does it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory and also how Jesus received glory from the Father. And his ultimate purpose is so that we may believe so that we can have life in his name. Now, as we zoom in a little bit and we looked over the last couple of chapters, what's been happening is Jesus has been preparing his disciples for the pain of his departure and the challenge that they're going to face with the upcoming assignment. And so he started off with ministering to them by giving them a deeper understanding and experience of the gospel by washing their feet. He strengthened their faith by revealing to them his betrayer. He showed them as troubling and as dark as this hour might seem, it's also going to be the most glorious moment in all of history for God. there is where God will reveal all of his glory. He also gave them a new command while he is gone. He says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. He promised them an advocate, a counselor, a helper, the spirit of truth. And then uh, two weeks ago, he encouraged them to remain in him for apart from him, you can do nothing. Now, Jesus wanted to prepare his disciples for everything they could possibly face while he is gone. And so as he encouraged them to remain in him, now he warns them of the opposition that they're going to face. 
And what's going to happen is that the more they remain in him, the closer they grow in their intimacy and fellowship with the triune God, the more it will propel them into the mission of God, the more there will be a distinction between them and the world, and that would cause opposition. As Paul later would tell us in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, he says, all of those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And it makes you wonder, as as we look at this text, as Jesus warns the disciples of this opposition, it makes you wonder, why does the world so much hate Jesus? By his words and his works. Why would they oppose the disciples? And if Jesus is leaving them because they ultimately hate Jesus, the world, why would the opposition continue? And if the disciples knew that they're going to be opposed, what are some promises that Jesus gave them that they can cling to in the midst of this opposition? And so my goal is as we look at the text and we try to answer some of these questions, maybe there are some principles and truths that we can apply to our lives, knowing that opposition is here all around us, it's even coming. And what are some truths that in the midst of the opposition that we can cling to? So let's look at our text in in John 15, verse 18. Jesus says this, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So what Jesus is doing, Jesus is warning his disciples. He's wanting to prepare his disciples for the opposition that is coming to eliminate any surprise factor. So that when persecution breaks out, they will know it is coming. And Jesus starts off by saying, the world hates me. Like notice the word hate. It's not like the world is indifferent towards Jesus or the world simply tolerates Jesus. But rather the world hates Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is since the world hates me, the world now will also hate you. And so the first question I want us to answer before we ask the second question, why does the world hate Jesus? Let's first of all see what Jesus tells us. Why will the world hate Jesus' disciples? Why will the world hate believers, hate Christians, hate aka you? Well, if you're, you're taking notes, the very first reason why the world will hate you is because you are an outsider. You are an outsider. Look at verse 19 again. It says this. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. So why does the world hate you? Because you are not of this world, because you have been chosen out of this world. In other words, what that means is as the disciples' intimacy is increasing and love is increasing among the triune God that leads to obedience and fruitfulness, they will have the same effect as they imitate their master, Jesus. They will appear as strangers, as outsiders. And in turn, the world will hate them, hate us. Now, what that does not mean is that the world is somewhat suspicious of strangers and can only accept their own status. And that Jesus is an outsider and the reason why they can't accept Jesus because he is an outsider. The reason why they can't accept the disciples because they are outsiders. But rather what Jesus is describing is not because they can't accept strangers, but rather it is a form of a moral corruption. The world, the society we live in is a society of rebels. Rebels. 
And the world finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king who they are rebelling against. And that is why Jesus says they love their own. They love those who are rebelling with them against the king. But because you're not one of them, they will hate you. But what we have to understand as well is the reason why the disciples, the reason why the Christian, the believer, does not belong to the world is not because they never belonged to the world. It's not because they were never rebellious or morally superior, but rather Jesus says, why do you no longer belong to the world? Look at verse 19 again. Because you are not of this world, but I have chosen you out of the world. In other words, the disciples were former rebels, morally corrupt, and somehow, by God's sovereign grace, He chose them out of the world, won them back to His loving allegiance to the King. And the world sees it and hates it. And this means for the disciples that, in a sense, they can't think that they're morally superior than the world of rebels because they themselves were rebels too. And yet somehow, Jesus says, I have chosen you out of this world. In other words, you too were former rebels. As the Bible says, you were objects of wrath. But having been chosen out of this world, been drawn by the love of the Savior, now they belong to the Savior and they're still in the world, but their newly found status is despised by the world of rebels. And this is one of the things that fascinates me in this text. If you look at the last couple chapters, like notice how many times does Jesus remind his disciples that I have chosen you. And I know, like, like, my agenda is not always to bring up the doctrine of election, but rather to stay true to the text. And I can't help it that Jesus is constantly looking to his disciples and say, don't think you're awesome. Remember, I've chosen you. Don't think you're better than the world and you're morally superior. The world hates you not because you're better than the world. The world hates you because I have chosen you out of the world. In other words, well, what that means is that, in a sense, the doctrine of election should bring us great encouragement. It's made us outsiders, and that is why the world hates us. It's not because we're that awesome, because we were former rebels rebelling against the king, and somehow the king, by his grace, did not give us what we deserve, but pulled us out of the world and brought us to his own. And the world looks at us and says, I hate them because I hate the king. And then Jesus reminds his disciples Look, if they persecuted me, and many of them did, they're going to persecute you. If they obeyed my teachings, and some of them did, they'll also obey yours. So the first reason why the world hates us is because we are outsiders. The second reason, look at verse 21. Second reason why the world will hate us. But they will do all these things to you on account of, of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. So in other words, the second reason, if you're taking notes, why the world will hate us, the world will hate us, the world will hate you because of his name. Because of his name. Look, look, look at verse 21 again. But they will do all these things to you on account of what? On account of my name. It's because of Jesus why they hate us. So in a, in a sense, the response to Jesus' disciples, whether good or bad, is not because of the disciples, but because of Jesus. That means that the world will hate you and oppose you, not because of you, but because of Jesus. And so when people in our day and our culture say, I don't like Christians, but I'm pretty sure I'll like Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, no, you won't. 
The reason why you don't like them and hate them is because you hate me. And if the world could crucify Jesus again, they would. Now, I was trying to gather my, my, my thoughts together, and I don't know if I'm grasping for something that's not there, um, so I'm going to be very cautious with it. But as I was looking at the reasons why the world is opposing us, why the world hates us, not only are we outsiders, but because of the name of Jesus, even for these reasons why the world opposes us, I find it encouraging. And let me, let me explain it to you why. Like, think about the, fir- the very first reason why the world hates us. The world hates us because we are outsiders. In other words, it's encouraging in a sense. It's not because we were born outsiders, but we were chosen. We were bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We ultimately belong to him. Like, how encouraging is that in our hearts and our minds that when we face opposition, when persecution breaks out, that we can find comfort. The reason why the world hates us because we are outsiders, because somehow by God's gracious election, he chose me out of the world by his precious blood. He bought me and I belong to him. And so even in the midst of persecution, I can be encouraged and find comfort with that. And that's why I think after the apostles were persecuted and flogged what did they do immediately they ran back reported as they praised God for what a wonderful opportunity it was to suffer for the name of Jesus because by that persecution they were reminded yeah we're outsiders we're chosen by Jesus we belong to him he has bought us what an honor it is to suffer in the name of Jesus Even think about the second reason of how encouraging it is uh, that the world hates us. The world hates us because of his name, because of Jesus. And and I think that's encouraging. And the reason why I, I think it's encouraging is because when people are opposing you, when you imitate Christ, they're not really opposing you, but they are ultimately opposing, they're opposing Jesus. Which means that when I imitate Christ, and people are opposing me, I don't have to lose sleep over it. I don't have to take it personal. Why? Because they're really not opposing me, but rather they are opposing Jesus. It's because of Jesus that I'm facing this opposition. And so in a sense, the reason for the opposition is also why it can also be encouraging for the person who's being facing opposition because of, of Jesus. Jesus is going to tell us the reason why the world hates him. So let's answer the question, okay, why does the world hate Jesus so much? Um, before we look at the reason in our text, there's another reason. Um, Jesus has already established it. So the very first reason that Jesus already established that's not in our text is in John 7, verse 7. Jesus already established in John 7, verse 7, when he, he told his brothers, he said, Look, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its work is evil. So the very first reason of why the world hates Jesus, this again, this is not in our immediate text, but in the God in John 7, verse seven, if you're taking notes, is the reason why the world hates Jesus is because Jesus testifies that what it does is evil. What it does is evil. And again, this is why I always laugh when people say that don't believe in Jesus. I hate the church. I hate Christians. They're all legalistic. They're all a bunch of hypocrites, but I'm sure we'll love Jesus. And it's like, you really won't because you know what Jesus is going to tell you? That what you're doing, bud, that is evil. That is wrong. That is an ultimate rebellion and defiance against God. But the second reason that we find in our text of why the world hates Jesus, if you're taking notes, is this, that they do not know God who sent Jesus. They do not know God who sent Jesus. We, we see this in verse 21. Look at verse 21 again. It says, but they will do all of these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. Why do they hate Jesus? Because they don't know the one who sent him. 
a.k.a. they do not know God. And the implications is if they had truly known God, they would have recognized that Jesus is the revelation of God. But Jesus unpacks it, this idea. Let's keep with this idea. The reason why they hate Jesus is because they don't know the God who sent Jesus. Look at this, verse 22, as Jesus unpacks it. This is kind of the complicated part of the text. Hopefully we can unpack it and have some understanding. Verse 22 says this. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. Notice the the parallel train of thought in verse 24. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not have sinned. Now Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in the law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. Now, did you notice in verses 22 to 24, it's kind of like the repeated ideas? Let me quickly point it out. The first idea that Jesus is saying, if I had not come and spoken, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. And then he repeats the idea again, but in a a different variance. If I had not done the works among them, they would not be guilty of sin. But because Jesus, those are the two ideas that's parallel, but because Jesus both have spoken and done the works among them, what's the conclusion? The conclusion is they're guilty of sin because they hate Jesus and hate the Father. Now, what does Jesus mean by saying, if I had not come, if I had not spoken, if I have not done the works, they would not be guilty of sin? What does Jesus mean by that? First of all, I don't think Jesus is saying if he did not come, if he did not speak, if he did not do the works among the people, the people would have continued in their uh, continued sinless perfection as if the coming of Jesus all of a sudden brought sin into the world. I don't think that's what Jesus means by that. Or another thing I, I don't think Jesus means by that, if it's Jesus did not come and if Jesus did not speak, if Jesus did not do any of the works, the people, God would have excused their ignorance. That's not what the text is saying. But rather, what the text is saying and what Jesus is saying, by Jesus coming, by Jesus speaking, By Jesus doing the works among them, he's insisting what that reveals is the most central and controlling of sins. And here is the most central and controlling of sins. If Jesus is the gracious revelation of God, and Jesus came, Jesus spoke, and Jesus did the work, The very first, most central controlling of sin is a rejection of God's gracious revelation, which leads to a, the second one, a rebellion against God, and the third one, a decisive preference of darkness instead of light. In other words, what Jesus is alluding to is not giving him an excuse for their ignorance. But rather what Jesus is saying is, I have come, I have spoken, I have done the work, and I am God's gracious revelation, which they have rejected, which means they are rebelling against God, and they are decisively deciding to live in absence of God. In other words, live in darkness instead of light. And the rejection of Jesus' words and works is the clearest rejection of light, the fullest revelation that incurs the most deepest, central, stained guilt. And whether people recognize it or not, Jesus' words and works is nothing less than God's work and word. That means if Jesus is hated, God is hated. Jesus is accepted, God is accepted so tightly 
as the Son bound up with the Father, both in person, both in words and in deeds, that every attitude that's directed towards the Son is also directed towards the Father. And what Jesus is saying is, they have no excuse. Now, now the Greek word for excuse is a little stronger in our English language. And what it's implying is whatever excuse the world might come up with to justify their evil before the coming of Christ is entirely lost now that the revelation of God through Jesus has been revealed. And so in a sense, what's happening is in the coming of Jesus, in the words of Jesus, in the works of Jesus, exposes their sin. And as it exposes their sin, Jesus' coming, his words and works, is also the remedy of sin. And this is what he is showing. And one of the things that we have to understand, it's easy for us to think, okay, so God sent Jesus. Jesus is the fullest, gracious revelation of God. And now people have rejected it, rebelled against God. And now they hate God, they hate Jesus. And immediately we're thinking, well, that kind of backfires on God. Like that kind of hatred, that kind of opposition kind of jeopardizes his plan of redemption. But that's not what Jesus says. But Jesus says in verse 25, no, that's not the case. But this happens so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. In other words, their opposition, their hatred towards Jesus had a redemptive purpose. It served a purpose where Jesus says, so that their law, a.k.a. their scripture, might be fulfilled. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 69, verse 4, where David was hated for no reason. And if David was hated for no reason, that means someone from the line of David, a.k.a. Jesus, would also be hated for no reason. And their very own scripture, their very own law, is the one that condemns them. So let's just stop here for a little bit. Let's zoom out. And let's make sure we're all on the same page and then we'll keep going. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the opposition that they are going to face. Jesus is insisting that hatred towards his disciples will spring from their hatred against Jesus himself. And in turn, this will be the world's response to the revelation that he is and brings. Rejection of it. But now the question we have to answer is, okay, we know why the world hates Jesus. We know why the world will hate us. But why, if Jesus is going to go away, why will the opposition continue towards the disciples? Wouldn't you think that ultimately they have fixed the problem by getting rid of Jesus, and now there's no more opposition? Peace has come. But look at what Jesus says in verse 26. He says this, When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. And so I think that's also the third reason, if you're taking notes, why the world will continue to hate the disciples and continue to hate us. The world will hate you because of the Spirit-empowered witness about Jesus. The world will hate you because of the Spirit-empowered witness about Jesus. Notice that Jesus promises disciples the Spirit. And what is the role of the Spirit? To testify about Jesus to the world. And the world's opposition will continue to revolve around Jesus. And what we have to understand in a sense is that although the Spirit may bear witness about Jesus apart from the disciple, the disciple will never be able to bear witness about Jesus apart from the Spirit. The believer's witness is first of all empowered by the Spirit, and the believer's witness must always be about Jesus. 
where it brings before the world the truth of the revelation of God and Jesus Christ. His words, his works, his death, his resurrection with all its potential blessings and judgment. And as the witness proceeds, it will divide the world. Those who believe and those who don't. As Jesus is preparing them for what is to come, he says, the world's going to hate you because you are an outsider, because of my name, because of the Holy Spirit that I'm giving you to empower you to be a witness of me. It hates me because what I'm telling the world is evil. It hates me because they do not know God. They have rejected his gracious revelation. They've rebelled against God, and they prefer to live in darkness. Now, you would think Jesus would just stop here. But now Jesus kind of reveals to them the reason why he's preparing for all of this. Because what he's going to show us, what he's going to show the disciples, that the greatest danger that they're going to face is not persecution, is not opposition, is not pain, suffering, or possibly even death. But rather, the greatest danger is apostasy. Look at uh, chapter 16, verse 1. It says this, I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now, I want us to pay attention to verse 1. Why is Jesus telling them these things? To keep them from, from stumbling. And what that word means, that, that idea is keep them from falling away. It has this idea of apostasy. And even when John was recording it, you know what was the, the greatest problem for the Christian or so-called Christian? The greatest danger wasn't persecution. It wasn't death. It wasn't pain. It wasn't suffering, but rather apostasy. Why? Because they were being banned out of their synagogues. The reason for the apostasy was being banned from synagogues. Now for us, in our minds, we're thinking, okay, if, a, if synagogue is like kicked out of church, you get kicked out of church, you can always go to the church next door. Not in that culture. Because they were such a communal people, to be banned out of the, to be kicked out of the synagogue was to lose everything. It was to lose your identity, your family, your friends, your source of living, even your house. And for many of them, after they surrendered their lives to Christ and they lost everything, many of them said, the price is too much. Let me abandon Christ and return to what I know. And it was even so that, that kind of John developed this, this theology because Jesus made promises that all those the Father has given me, not one will I lose, that I will keep them to the very end. And in his mind, he's thinking, how is the, how is the believer eternally secure? And yet we see so many Christians forsaking the faith. And he says this, he develops this theology in 1 John two nineteen. He says, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. The greatest danger for us today is not the opposition, it's not persecution. It's not pain, it's not suffering, it's not death, but is apostasy. Persecution reveals the heart. And for the disciples in Jesus' time, it would soon be made clear those who are true disciples. And for us, as we live in this world, as we're in a sense being opposed by this world because we are outsiders, because of the name of Jesus, it will soon reveal those who belong to Jesus. Now, 
I'm going to go off on a little rabbit trail, and then we're going to get back to the text, and then we're done. We're almost done, okay? As I was trying to wrap my mind around this text, obviously for the disciples, their persecution was obvious. It was the Jews. The Jews hated them. They flogged them. They beat them. And I was thinking to myself, what does opposition look like for us in our time? And what is the real danger of apostasy in our time? Because for them, being kicked out of the synagogue, losing everything. But for us, let's just be honest, we haven't really lost anything. Maybe you have, I don't know, probably not. So what is the real danger of apostasy for us in our culture? Especially when we live in a culture where we still have our freedoms and we're not really opposed to our faces um, and being burnt at the stakes yet. What does that look like for us? And so one of the things that, that uh, uh, just my assessment from the outside as I was trying to wrap my mind around it, and as I even looked at my own life, I think the greatest danger for apostasy in our culture today of abandoning the faith is not necessarily abandoning the faith, but in a sense, being distracted. Here's the reality of it. Many of us, many people, over time, we get distracted by the worries of this world. And as we are distracted, we are, in a sense, spiritually apathetic. And what happens is slowly but surely we drift away. In our spiritual apathy, we get distracted by the worries of this world. In my many years being here, I constantly see that. Now, I know it's summertime, many people are on vacation, but I want you to look around, or maybe when you leave, or next Sunday when you come in, I want you to pay attention. What are some families that you haven't seen in months, maybe even years? You know they haven't moved out of the area, but they don't come anymore. And I'm not talking about those who are disgruntled. I'm just talking about those who are drifting away. Why? Because what happens is, because we're spiritual apathetic, we get distracted by the worries of this world. There are things that are constantly competing for our affections. And if we are not actively resisting it, what happens? It slowly but surely takes us away. If we are not fighting actively at war with ourselves and what's going on in our hearts and our minds, it's easy for us to drift away. The saddest part of ministry is not the people that don't like you, The saddest part of ministry is to see the countless of victims that have drifted away. To the point where I read John, and my only conclusion, my only explanation is, they went from us, but they didn't belong to us. For if they did, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be clear that none of them belonged to us. And as your pastor, I'm warning you here. I'm not talking about other churches. I'm just talking about us here. What I am seeing is a great danger of spiritual apathy. We are spiritually lazy. We want everything to spoon feed us. We want everything to be convenient. We don't want to put any effort or any energy in it. And I'm telling you now, if you're not putting energy or effort in your walk with the Lord, You're going to drift away. If you are not actively resisting and actively fighting, you're going to drift away. And what is going to happen is when opposition comes, and maybe the opposition will be obvious, or maybe the opposition is not obvious, it's going to reveal to you what you truly believe. And so out of love and, and desperation, I'm pleading with you, wake up from your sleep, wake up from your slumber, 
The devil is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. And if you are distracted by the worries of this world where you're pursuing all of these things, they are a fool's gold because they will never satisfy you. And as you're chasing after these things, you're going to find being empty. And so this is why Jesus warns us. He's like, I'm telling you these things so that you don't stumble. I'm telling you these things so that you do not drift away. In fact, he says the second part, that when you get kicked out of the synagogue, a time is coming that these people that are doing these things, they're thinking they're honoring the Lord. And what that really shows us is just a mind of deception. We and our spiritual apathy drifting away, it's so easily for, be for us, all of us, including myself, to be deceived by lies that we are believing. I wish the enemy could come and say, I am your enemy, I am about to wage war against you, and this is all of my tactics. <laughs> but that's not how he comes. That's why even Paul warned the elders in Ephesus that people from among you will come in and devour you. They will appear to be good and righteous and serving the Lord, but you have to watch out, which means the Christian life is not a passive life. It is a life of actively resisting, actively fighting. And the second we get into cruise control, spiritual apathy sets in. There is a drifting. There is a stumbling. And Jesus warns us about it, and I'm warning you about it. Let's wrap it up. Verses 3 to 4. They will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. But I've told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. As we wrap it up application, one of the things we have to understand is because we're united with Christ, in other words, because we share in the life of Christ, not only do we share in his victory, which means if Christ has conquered death and sin, what have we done? The same, because we are in Christ. We have his righteousness. So not only do we share in his victory, but we also share in his suffering. And this is basically what he's telling his disciples. This is why, again, Paul tells us that in, in 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live a godly life will face persecution, which means you are going to face opposition. You have a race to run. You have a war to fight. But what you have to remind yourself of, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for the road of suffering. He is reminding them also in a sense that the road of suffering leads to glory. As our Savior laid down his life for us, paid for our sins, he was hated, he was mocked, he was falsely accused, he was rejected, he was killed. But then he was also raised. He was also exalted and that is the same road we are called to follow the road to suffering that leads to glory but here's the good news i know this is a very depressing message i'm sure you're glad i'm back but here's the good news no seriously here here's the good news you're not alone you have been chosen in christ out of the world you have been filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to Jesus. You belong to Christ. He is in you and he is with you. Here's what I don't want to see happen after this service. 
I don't want you to walk out of here and say, man, I gotta slap myself and, and wake myself up spiritually. I gonna do more starting tomorrow morning. I'm gonna wake up at 4 a.m. I'm gonna start reading the book from cover to cover. I'm gonna do all of these things. Uh, some of them are helpful. What I don't want you to do is walk out and turn to yourself. Walk out and turn to Christ. I think Hebrews, I thought I was going to memorize it before. I didn't, it didn't happen. Hebrews 12, yeah, Hebrews 12. It says, since we've been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he says, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares and entangles us. And let us run the race with endurance by doing what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. In other words, how do we run the race with endurance? By trying harder? By doing more? No, by fixing your eyes on Jesus. The reason why you are distracted is because you have taken your eyes off Jesus. And your application is, opposition is here, you're going, going to continually face opposition. I beg of you, fix your eyes on Jesus. Run the race with endurance. And this is why we end with, with the table. Because what does this table remind us of again? It reminds us of who he is and what he's done for us so that in my struggle and in my race when I'm tempted to look to self and rely on my own strength and my own power and my own wit and my own wisdom and my own endurance, the table reminds me, no, I need to fix my eyes on Christ because it's not what I have done, but rather what he has done on my behalf. He has accomplished my salvation. He, through the Spirit, has applied my salvation. And even he will finish my salvation. And what is my part? I cling to Christ as I fix my eyes on Jesus. For he is the author of my faith. He is the perfecter of my faith. And as I cling to him, he is holding on to me. So as we get ready at the table, like, let, let's pray. But I want you to think about a couple things here. Before we pray and distribute the elements, like, what are some things that are distracting you in your life? Like, are you running the race with endurance? Are you fixing your eyes on Jesus, or are there some things that are distracting you, taking, where you're taking your eyes off of Jesus? Are you falling in the trap of, of spiritual apathy? Are you drifting away? And whatever it is, ask the Lord to help you refocus. Ask the Lord to help you to throw off those distractions. Ask the Lord to help you run this race with endurance. Ask the Lord to help you to fix your eyes upon him. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have sent your Son to reveal yourself and to accomplish our salvation on the cross. We're on the cross. Our sins was paid for in full by your blood, Lord Jesus. Your righteousness has been exchanged for our unrighteousness. And that we have been secured, we have been bought by your grace and mercy through your blood. Lord, thank you. And help us to never forget the price that you've paid, the wonderful salvation that you have accomplished and secured for us. Lord, and as we go through this world, 
and we find ourselves living in an increasing hostile society where it seems like our world have lost their mind. They never had a mind because they were active rebels. Help us as outsiders to fix our eyes on you, to run the race with endurance, to not get distracted by the worries of this world, to not chase after fool's gold, but to run as we keep our eyes on you. For we have already received the ultimate prize, and that is you. We've already received the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate satisfaction, and that is in you. And help us not to forget. Help us to be able to resist, to fight the schemes of the evil one. And may we be encouraged that yes, this road of suffering is towards the road of glory, but we are not alone. Your spirit is inside of us. Our salvation has been secured, has been finished and accomplished. We can run with confidence because of what you have done for us. And thank you for this table that it reminds us of the salvation that you have accomplished, the salvation you have finished. Help us to be reminded of the wonderful privilege we get to share in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. And as we distribute these elements, use this time to meditate. Thank the Lord for the salvation he has accomplished for you. Meditate on the benefits that you have in Christ. And ask the Lord to help you continue to fix your eyes upon him. I'm so grateful for our Lord and Savior who has accomplished and secured our salvation by his body that was given to us. We can eat and remember the salvation he's accomplished and secured for us. Take it and eat it. By his blood, that was shed for us the new covenant we have in him. He has accomplished and secured our salvation. Drink it in remembrance of him. Can you just take a moment and thank the Lord for the salvation that he has accomplished for you and secured for you, that it is finished. There's nothing for you to do. Lord, we thank you, we praise you. We give you all the glory and all the honor. Lord, help us to be strong. Help us to cling to you, help us to trust you. Help us to fix our eyes upon you. And may we run with endurance. And as we hold on to you, Lord, hold on to us. And for those who are drifting, Lord, bring them back. We thank you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our Lord and Savior?